Once again, we're reading from uh, Luke 7, verses 18 through 35. John's disciples told him about all of these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yeah, yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. All of the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' word, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. Jesus went on to say, to what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace calling out to each other, we played the pipe for you and you did not dance, we sang a dirge and you did not cry. For John for John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of the tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all of her children. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Happy December. So uh, this morning we're wrapping up a part of this fall series we've been going through in Luke's gospel. Next week we'll jump back to Luke 1 and start the Christmas story. So I want to use today as a way to wrap up what we started back on September 9th, I think it was, when we started this journey with Jesus through the gospel of Luke. And we end where we started. Uh, with the figure of John the Baptist. You may not remember it, but September 9th, we looked at chapter 3, and we saw John the Baptist. Uh, he was in a very different place then. He was out in the wilderness, 
He had a very different tone. He was preaching this baptism for the repentance of sins. Uh, We see him again today, now in a very different context. He's actually in prison in this scene, and his tone has changed. (laughs) Before he was bold and assertive and challenging, now he's, uh, he's questioning. He's confused. He's He's doubting Jesus. And I want to focus on his question this morning uh, in verse 19 that gets repeated in verse uh, 20. Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? You you realize what John the Baptist is asking? Are you the one? Are you the Messiah? Are you the king? Are, Are you the one I've been telling everybody you are? Or... Have I got this wrong? Is, should we wait for somebody else? That is a remarkable question coming from John the Baptist, I think. Uh, when I was reading a commentary, I said, this is the most remarkable question in all the Gospels. <laughs> but that John the Baptist is asking that question, the one who was, who was filled with the Holy Spirit at birth, right? The one who is this prophet, this one who is to go and you know, be the forerunner for Jesus, the one who saw the baptism of Jesus, heard the voice, this is my son, saw the spirit land on him. That John is now thinking, did I, did I get this whole thing wrong? Like, have I missed, is this, am I looking at the wrong guy? That, that is remarkable. Um, it's remarkable that Luke includes this in his narrative of Jesus. And if you, if you read other, like, ancient biographies of heroes, which this is kind of like that, they, they would never include this in their biographies. They always paint their heroes in these glowing colors, and they, they say all the good things about them. Um, this is a potentially embarrassing moment. <laughs> you have the forerunner to the Messiah doubting whether the Messiah is the Messiah. It's, pretty, it's a remarkable thing that, that Luke includes it in his gospel. Uh, Jesus' response in verse 23, we'll go through this in more detail, but I think gets to the heart of it. Look at verse 23. Jesus' response to this question is, Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Or your translation might say, who does not fall away or does not turn away or is, uh, who is not offended by me. Your English translations may say. Um, the Greek word there is the word scandalon, where we get our word scandalized. So a literal English translation would be, blessed is the one who is not scandalized by me, Jesus is saying. And a scandalon, literally, is, um, you, would, you would understand it as a stumbling block. Like the, the word picture is, imagine yourself going on a, on a road, Cal, I'll be you. You're going on a road, you've got this path you're trying to go, and then there's something in the way. There's a big rock or there's a boulder that's in your way. It's something that you might stumble over. You might trip, get tripped up by. It, it might prevent you from continuing on your way. It's a stumbling block. And so figuratively, it, it means, comes to me in the life of faith. This is something that might trip up your faith. It might cause you not to keep going on the road of faith. And apparently Jesus is doing some things, or not doing some things maybe, that are tripping John up, that are leaving him uh, on the ground confused. Like, what, what's going on? This is not adding up to what I was expecting. Blessed is the one who's not scandalized by me, but Jesus is going to do things. He's going to say things or not do things or not say things that don't always uh, meet our expectations. And so um, we can get tripped up by him. We can be scandalized by him. We can look at his worldview or things he's doing and say, I'm not sure if I buy this. I'm not sure if I'm in for this. I'm not sure what to do with this. I don't know if I can go on uh, with this Jesus as he's presenting himself. This This Jesus is leaving me with all sorts of questions. And doubts. So this morning, I want to wrap up 
uh, this fall series, having seen Jesus at work for three months together, I want to talk um, about the role of doubt in the Christian faith, in the Christian life. And I promise if you Google that, that won't come up as like the top three most preached sermons. Um, but we've sat with Jesus for a while, and I thought this would be a good way to, to conclude the fall as we enter into the Advent season. Let's talk about the role of doubt in the Christian life today. And I want to start by acknowledging that um, for some of us, um, we grew up in a church culture that had no room for doubt, right? The, the Bible commands faith, and doubt is the opposite of faith, and so doubt is um, sin, is unbelief, is disobedience. Um, I would pr- propose something slightly differently than that. Um, I think that any honest pursuit of truth, any true pursuit of truth, if you're not just interested in adopting what you inherited from your parents, whatever religion or world system you adopted, but you're, you're, you're honestly pursuing truth, any honest pursuit of truth is going to have, by its nature, elements of doubt to it, right? I think this is the way forward. I think this is reality. But I'm not sure. It might be this or this. And as we encounter Jesus, I promise you, he is going to buck our expectations from time to time. He's going to offend. He's going to scandalize our sensibilities. And we'll be left a bit confused or questioning or wondering, like, I don't know if I buy this. And so I want to talk about it today. Um, For myself, I'll just kind of let you into my own journey. I've had, I I would say, one and a half seasons of very substantial doubt, like meaning I have no idea what I believe right now. Like if I had to put money on it, Jesus or no Jesus, I'm not sure where I should put the money. Um, In about 25 years of trying to follow Jesus, I would say somewhere along the way, I've probably doubted every major Christian doctrine at at some point, like like the authority of, of this book the Trinity, the second coming, like he's actually going to come again. Like not, not the, I'm not talking about like sprinkling versus dunking baptism, like the big ones, okay? Like the big ones, like this is a big one. You got to make a decision about this. At some point, I have had to wrestle and I've had legitimate question about almost every major doctrine of our faith at some point. So um, all of our journeys are different. And for some of us, doubt will be a more faithful companion than for others of us. Um, we're all wired differently. Um, but I thought it'd be, it'd be helpful to, to talk about it. How, how do we think about this? Um, how do we doubt well? Is there such a thing as, as good doubt and bad doubt, as healthy doubting and an unhealthy doubting? So I want to talk about this as we wrap up our, our fall series. And we'll use John. I think he's, he's a good um, doorway into this conversation. So let's think about John uh, together. Again, he's in a very different setting now, a different context than we saw him back at the beginning. Um, he's got this question. He has these doubts. And I, I would suggest that there are two dynamics at play in, in John's questioning. One is more theological or intellectual, and one is deeply personal and experiential. Okay? So let's look at first the theological uh, the, the, the passage begins in verse 18, where it says, John's disciples told him about all these things. So all the things that Jesus has been up to. He's up in Galilee, and they've been watching. They, come, they go back to John and report. This, these are the kinds of things uh, John, uh, Jesus is doing. And, and that report leads John to question whether Jesus is the Messiah. So apparently, whatever Jesus is doing, or whatever he's not doing, is not, is not meeting John's expectations theologically for what Messiah is supposed to do when he comes. 
So that leaves us with the question, well, what was John expecting the Messiah to do? Um, let, I just want to take you back to uh, chapter 3. We read this back in Sept- on September 9th. This, is, this was John's message about the Messiah. Uh, I, this is John speaking for himself, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork, he's going to, you know, the winning fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat, that's the good folks, into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. All right, so this is a prophet speaking of the coming king. And to sum it up, John's expectation is that when the king comes, he is going to clean house. Right? He is going to come to an unprepared and mixed bag of people, and he's going to clean house. He's going to bring salvation, and he's going to bring judgment, and it's going to be clear. It's going to be clear to everybody. And John's seeing this ministry up in Galilee, and to put it, you know, just short, he, he's not seeing a lot of house cleaning. You know, he's, he's not seeing judgment. He's not seeing the things he's expecting. Really, Jesus has been at this maybe for months or maybe even for a year or two, and nothing has substantially changed in Israel, at least from John's perspective, okay? The Roman occupying force is still in power. Jesus hasn't changed that. Um, The religious leaders of the day that had been corrupt, Jesus hasn't cleaned them out. He hasn't replaced them. Jesus hasn't spent any time hardly in Jerusalem where a king ought to be, let alone set up a throne. They're really... Israel remains fundamentally unchanged. Jesus is just up in the, the hill country of Galilee, uh, hanging out with some strange people, but nothing really has changed. There's no house cleaning taking place. This doesn't make any sense to John. And, you know, 2,000 years of hindsight for us brings clarity on who the Messiah was, was, had come to be. And so this, of course, of course, these are the things that Jesus is doing. And of course, he's going to go to the cross. That would not make any sense to John in his context in terms of what he's expecting the king to do. So he has, he's scandalized, right, by it. He's tripped up by it. It's a theological, intellectual question that he has. Jesus is, is not fitting his idea of what Messiah is supposed to be. But then I think underneath the theological there is a, a more deeply personal issue that is driving John's doubt, an experiential issue that's driving d- John's doubt, and it's this. Um, where is John in this moment? I said it earlier. He's in prison, okay? So again, this is back in, in chapter 3, right after what I read you. It says this, but when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, so Herod married his brother's wife. John said, you probably shouldn't do that. Uh, And all the other things that Herod had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. So John's been in prison for months, maybe over a year. He's locked in a prison cell now. This man who is used to the wilderness, the wild and free wilderness, is now locked in a prison cell. And he's sitting there day in, day out, month after month, and he's thinking, not just you're not meeting my expectations theologically, but Jesus, if, if you're the Messiah, if you're the coming king, then what am I doing in prison? Like, where are you? Come rescue me. Do the thing that kings are supposed to do. There's a deeply personal issue. This isn't making any sense to have how my life is going right now if you're the Messiah. 
And I was really struck this week. I've never really thought through this. I, I just stepped back and thought about the trajectory of John the Baptist's life and ministry. And I, I just want to lay it out for you for a second. So just let's watch this trajectory. He's, his life starts with this miraculous beginning. The angel Gabriel comes to his father, Zechariah. You're going to have this miracle child. He'll be filled with the Spirit uh, from birth. This amazing potential at the start of his life. And then he engages in this very dynamic public ministry, right? He's down in the wilderness. Droves of people are going out to see him being baptized. Hugely popular ministry. I would argue that even after Jesus' crucifixion in Israel, there were lots of people who knew John knew more about John than did about Jesus. Like his, his ministry rivaled Jesus in terms of just the, the national effect, the popularity of it, all right? And then he comes to this high point where he's baptized and he sees Jesus coming and he gets to baptize Jesus and sees, you know, here's the voice, this is the one, this is my son, this is the king. And then after that, things just kind of take this steady downward turn. So um, Jesus starts, you know, building disciples, and John's ministry starts to wane. It just starts to get smaller. Uh, here's a scene from John's gospel. John's disciples came to him and said to him, Rabbi, that man, that man Jesus, who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one who testified about, look, he's baptizing, and now everyone's going to him instead of you. Uh, John says to this, John replied, you know, a man can receive only what is given him from heaven. He must become greater. I must become less. And so his ministry, now his ministry was all about pointing people to Jesus. Now Jesus is here. Well, what's, what's his ministry like now? And it just begins to wane. Um, uh, and then, of course, he's thrown into prison. And he spends months or years in prison. And that imprisonment ends with this story. Uh, On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. They went, uh, then they went and told Jesus. So what a trajectory of a, of a life of this man who was faithful, who, who absolutely answered the call that was placed on him by God. And I was thinking this week, I bet you if, you, if we could go back to the high point of his ministry, when he got to baptize Jesus, everything that's been building to that moment, and if we could have interviewed him right then and said, hey, what do you think is going to happen next? Like, what's going to happen in the next three years in light of what actually happened? I guarantee you'd say that nothing has gone the way I expected. Like, I, this is, I can't believe that this is not at all what I thought was going to happen when Messiah finally revealed himself to Israel. Certainly not for my life, not even for the nation. And so now, we're in our passage, he's sitting in a prison cell, lots of time on his hands, alone with his thoughts, and this doubt creeps in. Maybe I got it wrong. Maybe this guy isn't the guy after all. He's scandalized. He's, he's tripped up. He's confused theologically and personally. And before we look at Jesus' response, I, I think what, what a helpful figure uh, for us today to think about the doubts, the questions, the wrestling that people have in and outside the church. 
But I think there are, there are lots of doubts that are driven theologically, right? There are, there are intellectual questions that we have. Is Jesus really who he says he is? Is his worldview really the right worldview? Is he right about the way reality is? I was thinking about the intellectual questions that, that people have about Jesus today, the theological questions. And I thought, you know, it's interesting. What scandalized John about Jesus is probably the very opposite things that scandalize people today about Jesus. You know, John was scandalized because he wasn't seeing the judgment that he expected Messiah to bring. I, I think today people are scandalized by the opposite. They hear Christianity and think, oh, that's, there's judgment, right? And there's, there's this God who allows suffering, who sends people to hell. And for, for us today, that scandalizes us. I was, I was um, thinking of this image in my head this week. You have Jesus, and he is who he is. He's the eternal son of God. But then you have, this is a, a timeline uh, of various cultures, okay? So like culture A, culture B, culture C. Let's, we'll be culture D. Let's say John is culture A. Back 2,000 years ago, ancient Israel, we're culture, culture D. But every culture views Jesus from the angle of their cultural assumptions, right? Their worldview assumptions, so John, coming out of this Old Testament prophetic worldview, he looks at Jesus and says, where's the house cleaning? It's not happening. He's scandalized. He's offended by that. We now come from culture D as modern, secularized Westerners, and we have a whole different set of assumptions about life, right? And we're, we, we're, there's, we're swimming in this air that says, you know, the, the ultimate thing in life is human autonomy, is the freedom of the human heart to be what it wants to be, to be all that it can be, and the good life to have those external constraints removed so that the heart can be all that it wants to be. You can be yourself and, and do what you want to do, okay? That's just, that's what we're breathing. That's the, that's the air we're breathing. Well, that culture looks at Jesus and is offended by entirely different things, <laughs> Scandalized by the exclusivism, the exclusivism, exclusivism. Yes, right. Jesus saying, "I'm the way. I'm the only way to God." Our culture says that that's offensive. That doesn't allow the human heart to do what it wants to do. Or Jesus's sexual ethic. Okay, John would have had no problem with Jesus's sexual ethic. Today we look at it and go, "That feels incredibly limiting." I mean, that's a very limiting ethic of of where sex is appropriate, right? Or this idea of judgment that God can judge people, that, that God allows suffering, that, that not everyone goes to heaven. So our, our culture looks at that and we're scandalized by it. John wouldn't have been, those things would have been, of course that's the way it is. We all have different sensibilities and, and we're scandalized in different ways by Jesus. So Jesus is, he's an equal opportunity guy. He's equally offensive to every culture, but in different ways. <laughs> but that's just helpful to, to, to remember you know, we're scandalized by the very opposite thing that John is scandalized by, generally, because we live in a different culture than he did. So we have these intellectual, these theological beefs to pick with Jesus. But I would argue that most of the time, underneath those more intellectual questions, there are more deeply personal issues that often drive the doubts and the questions and the scandal that we experience with Jesus. They're much more personal than just ideas. And usually it comes down to something like, in whatever way, life has not gone the way we had hoped it would go. 
right? Like my, my life, I had an expectation. I had a hope for my life. And in whatever areas, it has, that has not been met. Life hasn't gone the way I wanted to. Certainly John could say that. And we can say that. And it leaves us with this disappointment with God, disappointment with Jesus. Jesus, you haven't in, intervened in my life in ways that I, I'd hoped you would have. You have allowed certain things in my life that I thought you, you wouldn't do that. Like that, my expectation was you wouldn't allow that. Right? I mean, I can give you a list of the marriage that, that fell apart. I thought that would never be a part of, of my life. The, the father that I, I never really had, that I really had, I would have thought you would have wanted me to have. That would be a good thing. Um, the family I was never able to, to raise. The, the church that, that really disappointed me and, and hurt me. Um, the loved one who, who died, um, who I didn't think that you would allow that to happen, right? These, these profound personal experiences, I think, often are, are underneath the, the angst of, of, the, of the doubts that grow in our minds. We're like, God, I don't know if I'm on board with, with you. I'm not sure if I can handle this. So we experience disillusionment is a good word, with God. And of course, the word implies we were living under a certain illusion, right? That we, we, the illusion was, if God is here and he's good, then th- life has to look something like this. And we came to find out, oh no, that was, that was an illusion. But what a painful experience to have that disillusionment. But it's, it's amazing how much our life circumstances can shape our doubts, even though we might kind of give intellectual reasons as, as an excuse. And I, I bet most of us, we've had high points in our lives where we're like, something will happen, and we're like, I will never doubt again. Right? Have you ever had like, God, you are so real to me right now, I will never doubt again. And then four or five years later, right, life has gone a certain way, and, and here we're like, I don't know what I think about this. And I'm sure for John, I imagine at the baptism of Jesus, you've asked him, he'd be like, I will never doubt. I mean, what I just saw and heard, I will never doubt. And then there is, you know, a couple years later, experiences have changed, and he's left with real significant doubt. Not one of the most popular sermons I, I mentioned on, on Google. <laughs> How are we feeling? Happy, happy, happy Christmas. <laughs> uh, well, let's look at Jesus' response. I love this. Um, Three things I noticed about Jesus' response. First, there's a graciousness um, with Jesus' response. He doesn't rebuke John. He doesn't chide John. In fact, when the, John's disciples leave, he speaks really highly of John, right? Beginning in verse 26, what did you go out to see? He's like, you went out to see a prophet. John's legit. He's not just any prophet. He's the prophet. He's the one to come in the spirit of Elijah. Uh, among those born of women, no one's greater than John. So he, in the moment of John's doubt, Jesus doesn't rebuke him. He affirms him. He celebrates him. He he commends him to the people, meaning he, he has room for John's doubt. Uh, this is a good kind of doubting. This is, a, this is an understandable doubting, and Jesus has all sorts of room for that. I think Jesus gets it. Like, he knows he's completely not what people are expecting. He knows that. He has, he has room for, for that. And that's something I, I just want to say today, that I want to be a place where we've, we've, we have room for doubt. Um, Jesus has that room, and, and maybe you need to hear that for yourself this morning. Um, the doubt, doubt, good doubt doesn't have to come with shame and guilt attached to it. And if you don't need to hear maybe you need to hear it for the sake of like your children or your grandchildren. You know, some, sometimes that's where you ex- are in touch with doubt as your kids are going through this journey. 
And to go, what does it mean to, to have the right kind of space for my kids or for my grandkids? Uh, the appropriate kind of space for them to wrestle with that without shaming them. So I, I think Jesus has, is gracious here. And then what he does, I love what he does. He simply points John to what he's been up to. He just points him back to the works themselves, right? In that moment, Jesus is healing. He's, he's casting out demons. Verse 22, he replies, Go back and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. You'd think that would be enough credentials for the Messiah. Um, and Jesus is essentially saying, I'm doing the work of the Messiah. He's, he's, this is language cast in the language of uh, Isaiah the prophet. John would recognize some of this. But he's, Jesus is saying, my work speaks for itself. It may not look the way you expect it, but the work speaks for itself. I don't really have to defend myself other than to point you to who I am and what I've been up to. These are the works of the Messiah. You may just need to tweak your view of, of who Messiah is. And then he ends then with that, that comment that I made at the beginning, verse 23. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Now, I think the reality is because Jesus is so not what we expected, people are going to stumble. It's inevitable. We're going to trip up. We're going to be confused. We're going to be offended at times. And so I take his words to mean essentially this. Blessed is the one who, when they get tripped up, when they're confused, it doesn't keep them from continuing on the way. Blessed is the one who sticks with it, who, pursue, who keeps along that path, who gets back up and keeps on going, keeps on pursuing, keeps on seeking, even with the questions there. Blessed is the one whose stumbling does not cause them to ultimately fall away, but to dive in deeper and to dig deeper and to keep on going. So let me end um, with this thought um, rather than saying, is doubt good or bad, I, I want to just end by asking the question, how do we doubt well? I think that's the way to phrase the, the conversation is, what does healthy doubt look like? Uh, what does unhealthy doubt look like? So let me, let me pose just a couple thoughts here. I'll put them up. Here's doubting poorly, uh, at least according to me. Um, this is what bad doubt looks like. Uh, it is lazy doubting. And I would suggest there's a lot of lazy doubting going, going on in, in Christian culture today. And lazy doubting is this. There's something about Jesus or his worldview that doesn't sit right with me. It's kind of a generalized doubt. Um, but rather than actually pursuing it and diving deeper into that and looking into it and pressing into Jesus, I let that generalized doubt just kind of let me slowly drift away from obeying him, from following him, for engaging in his church community. It's like, it'd be like in a marriage where there's some tension underneath the surface, and rather than actually deal with the tension, because that feels a little painful, the couple decides not to deal with it, but they just kind of slowly lose intimacy over time. They, they're still together, they're still living together, but they just kind of become roommates, because they don't really want to do the work of pursuing intimacy, because it's going to be a little painful. Okay, that's, that's lazy doubting. Um, I think... Uh, I see this a lot. I saw this when I was in college. Doubting as a cover-up, right? This is um, the, uh, as a cover-up to kind of live the way you want to live, right? And, and yet, uh, there's something I want to do. Um, I really want to sleep with my girlfriend, sleep with my boyfriend. That's kind of what I want to do, and I'm going to do it. And, uh, but I know I, I'm probably not supposed to do that. But I'm going to use these intellectual doubts as an excuse because I got these questions about Jesus. I'm not really sure if I'm into him or not. Well, that gives me nice permission to kind of live my life how I want to live my life. Okay? I think that's a, that's a, it's doubting poorly, according to me at least. Um, 
And then this one, I think, really to to the heart of this passage, is um, this is a doubting that just makes demands on Jesus. And what I mean by that is it's a doubting that leaves no room to be offended by Jesus from time to time, to be scandalized, but to be confused. It doesn't give him permission um, to be God (laughs) and and to be corrected by him. If you look at um, the way the story ends in verse 31, there's this random, Jesus says some weird things about you're like, what is he talking about here? Uh, look at verse 31. To what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the pipe for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, you didn't cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he is a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He's using a metaphor of children who are calling out basically saying, you got to dance the way we want you to dance. And we need you to dance. So do the dance. Do the dance we want you to do. But Jesus is saying, it's never enough. Whatever dance you want, it, it, you're making these demands, but it's never enough for you. You know, John came a certain way. He was very austere, right? He was very, um, we could say, kind of conservative socially and, and, um, and you know, demand. I mean, he had a certain way about him. And you, and you say, well, he's got a demon. Well, then Jesus comes, and he's, he's more gregarious. He's more fun-loving. He's, he's, um, he's hanging out with the wrong kinds of people. And they're saying, you, you've got a, you're, you know, you're a drunkard. Basically, it's never good enough for you. You want us to dance the way you want us to dance. And, and that's the bad kind of doubting. It's a doubting that says, Jesus, you, you have to fit. You've got to dance for me. You've, you've got to fit my sensibilities. In this case, my modern uh, 21st century Western sensibilities. And if you don't fit those, I'm out. Like, uh, I'm in is to the point that we ag- agree. But once you start to hit some of my sensibilities, I, I don't have room for that. And, and if you just think about that, like, if Jesus is who he says he is, if Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, Surely he needs, we need to give him permission to offend us from time. Like, surely we're going to disagree every once in a while, and surely he might be right some of those times. <laughs> right? So it's the kind of doubt that says, hey, I'm questioning, I'm doubting, I'm struggling, like Jacob wrestling with the angel. But in that struggle, I give you permission to offend me, to offend my modern sensibilities. Because I, I have to acknowledge, maybe my modern sensibilities aren't the end-all, be-all. I'm not going to make you dance the way I want you to dance according to what I think it would look like for you to be Messiah. I give you permission to do that. So that's the poor doubting, and I've kind of already moved towards what I think doubting well looks like. I can't remember what I said here. Oh, uh, it's a doubting that gives permission, that, that's, that leans into Jesus and is honest. I've got legitimate questions, Jesus. I don't, I'm confused by you. I'm offended. What you do, it's hard for me. What you've done in my life or not done in my life, that is hard for me, and I'm not going to back down from that, but you have my permission to rattle my sensibilities every once in a while. You have my permission to not meet my expectations. After all, if you are who you say you are, certainly you have the freedom to do that. And there's a word for this kind of posture, and it's the word that I started this series with, that John the Baptist gave us in the first place. It is the word repentance. We started this series by a call to repentance, and I want to end the fall, with that same call. All that word means, the Greek word behind that, means to change your mind, a change of mind. So it is a posture that has a willingness to have your mind changed. A willingness to be corrected by Jesus. A willingness to be offended 
and then shaped by him and move in his direction. And what's beautiful, if you look at verse 29, you see this, this little parenthetical that Luke puts in that all the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's ways were right because they'd been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and experts in the law rejected God's purposes because they had not been baptized. Those who underwent John's baptism of repentance, they had this posture of willingness to change their mind. And so as they sat with Jesus, they were corrected by him. They were shaped by him, and they continued to lean into him. Those that weren't willing to have that posture, they walked away from him. And so I think that's the posture. We say, yeah, I'm going to come with my questions and doubts. I'm not going to back down at all. But I also want to come from this place of repentance, of willingness to change your mind, change my mind. Let me leave you with this passage in John 6. There's this, there's this um, moment where Jesus says some really confusing and offensive things like you need to eat my body and drink my blood. You remember that scene? And people just start leaving. All the crowds start, they're like, this is, they're scandalized. And they leave and the disciples are left. And uh, Jesus, uh, it says this, from this time many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Uh, you do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12, and Peter's response is this, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We, we have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. And I assume if we could get inside of Peter's mind that moment, he's like saying, Lord, I have no idea what you just said. Like, that was kind of kooky. Like, that was weird. But where are we going to go? Like, we, we've come, we've seen enough We've seen enough to believe that you have the words of eternal life. So we're going to keep going. I mean, where, where are we going to go? I think that is the posture that we want to have as followers. I'm, I'm going to wrestle. I'm going to struggle. But where am I going to go? So I'm going to keep leaning in. And I'm willing to be corrected. Let's pray. Lord, as we have together every Sunday sat with you, your words, your work, all your heart, all that you are, and as we, we represent in this room various doubts, either our own or our family members or our friends or neighbors, and we bring those to you uh, right now. Just bring them to you. We bring them with humble hearts, with repentant hearts, and, and we say, Lord, Show us. Show us more of who you are and, and change us and, and give us soft hearts and minds that are willing to be shaped by you, that don't just put demands on you and require you to fit into our boxes, but are willing to be changed and transformed. Lord, you have the words of eternal life. So draw us deeper and deeper into that relationship with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.